Today on the podcast, we have Grant Aldrich. He runs OnlineDegree.com, which is a platform for making an education affordable to all people rather than just those that can afford the privileged costs of a full on, not a full online degree, a full normal university degree where you pay lots of money to go and live at the university for ages. Um, so yeah, Grant, he's just a really cool guy and a bit of a badass. And we go into his life story and his purpose and he's really nice. I really like him. And um, I just appreciate anyone that starts a business just to build um, a company that fights for something they believe in. And yeah, I'm really proud of what he's doing. Not that I have anything to do with it, so I don't know why I'm proud. I'm really excited by what he's doing and a believer in it, and I'm very happy that he's doing it and happy to have this conversation with him and be learning from him. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation too. And yeah, let's get into it. Grant Aldrich. Well, let's start with what is the mission that you're on? Sure. You know, I'm on a mission to make college affordable for everyone. So my new startup is onlinedegree.com. And the premise is that you can come on and save up to 30% on your college degree for free. And the way that we've done that is that we're basically a modern alternative to junior college, where someone can get started in 60 seconds, start taking as many college level courses as they want online at their own schedule. And in that process, earn credits towards their degree and also activate discounts and scholarships that are instant, no applications at universities across the country. And it's the reason why we're doing that is because so many people are wanting to go back to school. They want a better life. There's all of these macro trends that have been affecting jobs and people's marketability, and yet they're not able to take that first step. And that the reason is because we're busy. We're all working adults, cost, busy schedules, and frankly, you know, psychological fears and anxieties always prevent us from taking that first step. And so my goal was to remove all those and provide a platform where people could then apply this to any school they want to go to in the country. So that, anyway, that's the mission that I'm on. Yes, yeah, pretty ambitious. So how does that work exactly? So if I take a few credits, I can basically miss a whole year, or is it just that I get the discount on the university? You know, both. Again, it's really easy to register. That's the whole point. doesn't cost you anything. You can look at, for example, all the different discounts that we've organized for our students with universities around the country, 25%, 10%, you know, sizable amounts to save thousands of dollars toward that degree. So you could just take advantage of that. Or you could combine that with taking a few of our online courses and then not having to take that course at the university, also saving you money. So it really is up to you. But everything's there and everything's there to help you overcome all of these issues to go back to your degree. Okay, nice. Yeah, I think it's, it's really important. And there's a lot of press these days around reskilling and the fact that jobs that we've trained for now are going to become redundant pretty quickly. And like the most important thing is to be able to kind of change career and actually learn quickly how to do something else. So I think this is a really cool way of getting into that. Have you looked much into sort of, do you think many of your students are like afraid of AI taking their jobs and things? Or is it more currently people that are just wanting to have like a better job? I think it's the latter, but I think people are cognizant of the fact, especially in certain industries, that robots, AI, these things are chipping away at our jobs. You know, for example, when globalization first came in, 
all of those manufacturing jobs that were wiped out in the United States, people felt that. And now they've had to, you know, either go and try to find another type of manufacturing job or change career paths. I think we're going to see a very similar wave with what's going to be coming with automation. I mean, to give you an example, there are 2 million trucking jobs in the United States. And these are good salaries, you know, $70,000, $80,000. It's hard work, but, you know, it's a good salary. And it's anticipated that those jobs are going to be almost wiped out by robot trucks and convoys within, you know, sooner than later. That's a very scary thing for us as an economy and scary for those people. And so I think what's going to happen is that you're right. I don't know if any, most people are involved in the macro trends of what's happening in the world, but you know, they do know that something's amiss and that they could be at risk of their own personal job. And so that is driving them to get these new skills. And I think what's happened is, is that people all know that a college degree is valuable, but because the scales have been tipped on the cost and the inconvenience and all these other things that affect someone from going back to school. They're not. And so we've just tried to rebalance all that and make it a no-brainer to get a college degree because it's so much more affordable and accessible. Yeah, I mean, student debt is ridiculous. So do you think that really affects a lot of people's decisions of whether to take a degree or not? Because in the UK, I feel like a lot of people don't think about the student debt. They just take it on and then kind of realize later, even though they kind of money well they're not really getting the value of the degree compared to if they spend that money on something else and so yeah it's interesting no you're absolutely right i think it cuts into two demographics so when someone goes from high school into college right we're 18 or 19 you know that age no one thinks about the cost unfortunately and mm-hmm. and i think later in life including myself in my own personal story we become aware of that debt and the immensity of that debt afterwards and it's crushing. But I think for a working adult, someone who's been in the workforce, who's got, you know, they've, they've got kids, they've got responsibilities, they understand about balancing their budget, for them to go back to school, it absolutely is a big factor being cost. So they've done a lot of different surveys. And the number one factor for adults to go back is cost. And second is flexibility with their schedule, which makes sense. Yeah, definitely. So most of the people that you have are then like older people. What's the typical demographic of the students that you take on? Yeah, we're anywhere from, you know, 23 all the way up to 45. And of course, that's the main group. But, you know, you've got people on the fringes on both sides. But yeah, most of it is for, you know, your normal person who wants to approach uh, higher ed or perhaps even go back to school, but doesn't want to you know, commit the same sin where they go back and pay full price again. So we really have a very wide appeal because it's free. We are so effective at lowering the price. It's it's got very broad appeal. Okay. So but you'd still say it's really important that people go for a real degree? Like what would you say is the value of a traditional university degree versus doing something else? Yeah, it's really tough because, you know, everybody's got such a different journey. And, you know, different opportunities with their current job or whatever they're doing to move up in that job. So for many people, maybe a degree isn't a good fit. You know, if you want to be a consultant or doing just programming and work on different contracts, well, yeah, then you don't probably need a degree. I mean, there's lots of cool coding boot camps or just free resources on YouTube you can utilize to learn how to code. So in some cases, you may not need that, which is great. 
And I love the fact that people are able to access all that. And in some cases, though, people do need degrees, right? There are certain industries that mandate you have to have a degree. You want to be an accountant, as one example. And so for those people, it's still such a large population. In the U.S. alone, higher education is a $688 billion industry. And if you think about it, there's very few other industries you can think of that are $688 billion. So there is such a large market of people who, who need that, and that's who we're trying to cater to. Okay, cool. Let's go into like, your background. But you said you've, you've worked in two other businesses, like startups and various nonprofits. Yeah, so I've been in startups my whole career. I'm 37, which makes me a dinosaur in the startup world, which I don't feel that old. And I've been very lucky in that I've been able to exit two of those companies to a publicly traded company. So I've had some success with that. And of course, really what that means is, is I've failed at so many things that I've learned so much. And yet, despite myself, had a couple wins. And during that process, I've got to do a lot of really cool nonprofit work. I've been on the board of a really neat foundation to help people who suffer with Sturge Weber syndrome. So what did you do as part of being on the board of a nonprofit? Like, what does that really entail? Yeah, there's always this mystique about what does it mean to be on a board? And, you know, sadly, so much of what you do on a board is very financial in nature. You know, for a nonprofit, you have to have oversight, right? So that, you know, the operators of the nonprofit have someone who they're accountable to. And of course, it's very rewarding because you do it for free and you are very intermixed into what's happening in the initiatives and whatnot, but it is very financial based, right? You're looking at what's being spent and how things are being allocated and you're weighing your input. So that's a big part of it. But then also part of it is you get to go out and try to open up doors to do things that'll help the nonprofit, which was really a lot of fun, right? Looking for donors and trying to open up other opportunities. So that part I really enjoyed. Okay, cool. Then can you allude a bit to a bit more information about the businesses that you started? Like, I'm sure there's quite a lot to go into in terms of where your ideas came from, the problems that you faced, and how to like sell a business. Yeah, you know, and this took, so I've had two businesses. One was in parenting, and the most recent one was a, we were working in aesthetic, aesthetic medicine, basically educating patients on different procedures and things within medicine and working with pharmaceutical companies where we would help them get information and offers from different pharmaceutical companies to lower the price of treatment and then be able to help them get treatment with the various doctors. And so we kind of served as a way to triage that because the pharmaceutical companies don't want to be the ones to send patients to, because they don't want to have to dictate oh, who, which doctor gets the treatment. So we would kind of provide all that. And it worked very well. And we exited to um, IAC, which is a really big media company that most people have never heard of them, but they own many websites you probably use. They own all the dating websites like match.com, Tinder, you know, things like that, which is a lot of, it was a lot of fun and I'm glad I did it. But, you know, one of the things in my journey was that I wasn't so satisfied every day when I worked on that. And because I hadn't had my epiphany on knowing myself and what I wanted to do. And so, you know, don't get me wrong. It's nice to be part of a startup and, you know, have some success, but you know, you don't love going to work every day, helping pharmaceutical companies. You just don't. And so I really tried to remedy that after which, and really have a period of time where I could look inside myself and say, you know, what do I really want to do? How do I really want to live? 
that, yeah, that sounds pretty deep. Yeah. <laughs> a few different things to go into. As in, I kind of wanted to ask more, how did you like find out about these problems to solve them? They seem quite niche. And like, did you get experience in that area before? You know, no, I came out of college and started, you know, these startups and, you know, I was very young, so I was only 23. So that should indicate, you know, the initial idea was not that well developed. And obviously, as we went through, I stumbled through so much of learning and because I was so young in developing the model. So the identification part of it was that I noticed that myself and the other founder that in the world of aesthetics, there was no performance-based marketing. So there wasn't anything, there wasn't, there was a lot of agencies, but there was nothing there that would be performance-based. Like what happens if we get a patient to call or come in the door? What if we change the model and apply new techniques of digital marketing and what would happen? And so that was really the genesis of it. And it evolved a lot over the years as we, you know, kind of built and, and, and went where it was very different at the end than it was at the beginning. So I really can't say that I think I had a grand vision initially. I think I was just bold or you could argue brazen and stupid enough to go and start it. And yet lucky enough that we were able to survive and adapt to get to the end. Yeah, that's cool. Sounds like a lot of lessons. So what would you say were your biggest mistakes then along the way? I think the biggest mistake was that one, because I was so young, and this is perhaps understandable to everybody, I didn't have a clear model in mind or the experience to back that up. So really, it was able to be successful just through grit and through determination and through you know, a lot of talented people on the team. But I think that you know, as I've gotten older, I would never go back in time to that phase because now that I've learned so much from operating so many companies and knowing what's a good business model, I think that so much of that makes you successful. Picking a good model, picking a good industry, and then making sure that you personally fit well within that model. Yeah, that's so important. That's definitely the way I'm kind of trying to plan things out these days. It's, yeah. Messed that up when I was younger. Yeah, there's opportunities everywhere, right? But there's a million good ideas, but really only a handful that are the right idea. You know, people can waste so much time on an idea that's eh, 80% there. And when I say 80%, I mean that it could either be not the best business model fit, right? It's, you'll make money with the business, but is it really the best thing you should be working on? Or is this the best for my personal skill set? right? Is this a role that requires, as an example, heavy on-phone sales and you don't like being on the phone? <laughs> so anyhow, that's the thing that I commonly see because I, I have a very large network of entrepreneurs now and that's kind of the most common thing I see. Yeah, that's really true. In the same way that like when you go for an interview for a job, it's as much about is the job right for you as are you right for the job? So you shouldn't like lie or anything because that's just pointless. You'll end up with a job you don't want. And we speak so much about market research being important, which it really is when you've got an idea to see if the market wants it, but you also need to work out what that dictates is what kind of job you have to run and whether you're the right person to be running it and if you'll enjoy it like, just as equally. You're right. And I think what's sad is that so much of conventional wisdom is about, hey, how do you mold yourself to that job to mm. make yourself competitive so that you can get it, right? Everything we know about resume writing is, you know, how can you look at the job and incorporate the things into what you're doing? Which if you think about it, yeah, I think that in that logic, you would have a higher rate of being accepted. But inherently, 
that creates situations where you're putting yourself into roles that are not the best fit for you to your own detriment. Yeah. Okay. So then how did you build the business in a way that you could sell it exactly? Was that something that you kind of planned as you were going along or did it just sort of happen to be that there was an appropriate person to take you on? It was because back then I did not have the concept of a lifestyle business or something that you enjoy what you do every day. I was very much consumed with the typical startup method where you grind and grind and grind and work every hour of the day for speed and to eventually exit the company. And by the way, as I reflect on this, it was so awful and that I I messed up in so many ways to what I had later. And so in that experience, it was, it was grinding, 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 except it didn't take five years. It took almost nine. And so you grinding for that long, you know, almost all of my twenties and into my thirties were consumed with all of this and to try to get enough critical mass and to get the exit and so many ways, parts through that. You have big ups and downs and crashes and whatnot, and it's very scary. And so finally, when you do get enough critical mass in an industry and you get to your revenue to a certain benchmark, it does open you up to a lot of opportunities to be acquired. So you know, for someone who's looking to do that, you have to have a great business model because the company that's going to buy you has to identify that they can scale you. They have to know that you have a certain market share right? And the fact in revenue, because otherwise, why are they going to take the time to buy you? If they can't take advantage of the fact that you've done so much work ahead of them, you've got, let's say so much of a experience and the revenue they can take advantage of. Because if, if the revenue is not there, you're not big enough to justify their corp dev teams coming in and doing the diligence and it won't move the needle for them. So only when we got to that, it's amazing how it just kind of happened, right? Eventually, So many companies know about you. People know about what you're doing. And finally, someone just says, this is really interesting. Maybe we should just buy this company. And that's what happened. So we were at the right place at the right time where IAC was looking to go into our industry, right? They were going into aesthetics and they wanted to differentiate their business model from what they were doing with display into something that we were doing with lead gen. So it just all worked out at that moment, right? It's one of those things where, yeah, luck is being at the right moment at the right time and being prepared to take advantage of it. That was absolutely the case. So it was always on our mind, but it didn't all hit until that, that one moment. Yeah, it's, it's really funny. And you do make your own luck, but it, yeah, it's sort of such an intangible thing about the way sort of fate kind of brings things together, but you definitely have to work for it to actually be in the position to be able to maybe be lucky at the same time. It's confusing. You're right. Yeah. Because sadly, you know, luck is one of those things that can be, it could be a lot of luck. It could be a little luck, right? But to get really lucky, you do have to have some pretty good foundational things, like uh, to your point, making your own luck. Because if you are, if you've been in an industry, you're creating a great business model, you're going to get lucky. It's just going to be a matter of time. But I do see a lot of situations with sad that, you know, people that luck never comes because there's just inherent problems in what they're doing. Okay. So how do you think? Like a setback or a failure set you up for later success? Do you think times where you felt unlucky, but actually it was possibly was lucky in the long run? You know, I think that after the last sale, uh, so my last company sold in 2000, basically the very last day of 2015. So 2016 and on, I looked at that. Obviously, you look at that as a big success and a life-changing moment. And it was all that for sure. But I was very lucky 
that I had a period of introspection that I was able to take the time to spend about six months to really ask myself and reflect on what had happened and where I wanted to go. And one thing I realized was that so much of it was a failure because I spent all this time, you know, nine years is not a trivial sum of time. I spent nine years in a role that I wasn't exactly happy in. It wasn't exactly the kind of work environment I wanted to have. And by recognizing that, it did set me up for success and now moving forward. So I'll give you some examples. I didn't like the fact that we were, you know, grinding and grinding and grinding when, you know what, you can't know when this is going to happen. You have to have a good balance of what's going to make you be able to perform enough and not have to grind every day. It's a lot of work regardless, but not have to grind every day. The second thing is, you know, we had... You know, you do all these hiring because you always think that when you start a company, you want a lot of employees and you want to be a manager. And that's great for some people, but that was not great for me. I realized that I'm not a good manager and I don't enjoy managing. And so I didn't like those aspects of what I had to do because I don't want to have to come down on someone if they're not working. I, just not my style. So there's all these things that I learned from that where I said, you know what, that's, I have to change this now. And I, I just learned so much about myself. Yeah, it sounds like a really useful, reflective period. Yeah, it's nice that you managed to have the time for it, but it's sort of sad that you needed those nine years of not having your control and working so hard in the grind to actually realize that because it's so important, I think. Yeah, you know, I'll share my favorite quote, which is, know thyself. And this is not a new quote. This quote comes all the way back from ancient Greece, thousands of years ago. That was a quote that was inscribed on the Temple of Apollo, which is the God of Wisdom. So it was well-known in ancient Greece. And the logic being that know thyself was the key to full knowledge, because how could you really understand anything if you don't understand yourself? And I think many of us don't reflect upon that often enough to really be honest with ourselves and know who we are. Because once you do that, well, then it's really easy to create your path and to be happy every day, right? No, no. Hey, I, I don't like doing this every morning. Great. Well, then don't create a lifestyle that's around that. That's fine. People all have different tastes. So once I went through that and I really had that period of time to ask myself who I am and what I want to do, then everything got much better. And ever since, it's just been an amazing divergence from what it was. Yeah, I think we're all there in a, like sort of stuck in a reactive state as opposed to like a proactive state. We're kind of just working in our problems rather than working on our problems, if that makes sense. And it's just so easy to get like carried away with what's going on rather than really thinking what it is that you should be doing and making what's going on the thing you want it to be, if that makes sense. And yeah, it's a really big thing. Actually, I think that's genius, Sam, what you just touched on, because you're right. You could probably write a book about that, right? Like we live in a world where we always are having to be reactive. And although it sounds so easy, it isn't to be the person in the driver's seat in all these decisions because so many things in your life are always trying to take your time, right? A, a boss asks you to stay nights for a long period of time, which maybe is okay in the short run, or other people who are trying to take portions of your time. And rarely do people think, no, I always have to be in the driver's seat at all times. I can't just always be reacting. So that's a very powerful observation. Thanks. Yeah. I've read like 60 books this year and none of them have sort of stated that like quite like I guess I just did but as I've been writing a, a blog on it but I've read a lot of books that kind of allude to that but just in like a certain area so like Marie Kondo's like art of magic art of tidying up or whatever where she basically just talks about your home and like 
setting that up to actually work how you want it to work and not having all your crap around dictating the way you live your life when you're at home and then there's just lots of books which is sort of talk about setting up the situation that you're in to make it how you want it to be but not really talking about like sort of the meta whole life thing but just sort of one element of it and kind of realize that that's basically what it is it's just working on everything rather than in it kind of thing yeah man that's a unique perspective i like that, that this is going to be your next book yeah well i'm starting with a blog post <laughs> it could become a book we shall see but too many book ideas it's a bit of a problem i um i went back to my uh, university last week to just give like a 10 minute talk about the things i wish i'd known before when i left my degree and sort of before i started work and stuff and <laughs> i've been, been writing a blog post for them and i basically wrote like a whole book's worth of like ideas dan was like oh um maybe i don't have six months to write this blog post so i've basically written one chapter for them and it was like yeah i could write the rest at another time maybe that'd be a good book right there's i think everybody would agree with you right that's something that always in hindsight there anyone can come up with a list of 10 things they wish they knew right anybody mm. and i think it with you of course being you know very insightful would probably come with a very good that everybody could relate with and would probably want to give that person going into school. It's a good idea. So yeah, we were talking about setbacks and failures and things. Then what would you say the growth mindset means to you? I'm a big believer that philosophy and mindset is critical. Absolutely critical. Because if you, and this is part of my entire life, if you don't have a good philosophy, something that you work off of every day, then there's always going to be situations that arise that if you're handling them piecemeal, you're going to have contradictions, you're going to be unhappy. So I believe you have to have a mindset, an overarching philosophy that guides you in your life. So I can point to all the different points in my life where I've had this renaissance that's added to that philosophy. My political and moral philosophy, my entrepreneurial, my parenting and family philosophy. All of those have kind of converged where to me, again, if you don't have that mindset, you're just, it's like you're a wet powder cake. You don't know when you're going to blow up in some aspect of your life and what's going to happen. So I really think this is a critical thing everybody needs to go through. Cool. So yeah, how have you, what's your mindset like around parenting then? It was kind of interesting because it's like, well, I would like to have kids at some point. It's just something I don't really know much about. Yeah. Well, for everybody who doesn't have kids, because the ones who do will probably already kind of are, are aware of this. I had children late in my life. So I had my first, I think I was in 34, and now I'm about to have three. Wow. And it is such a life-changing thing, right? Which everybody talks about. And that's true. So for me, part of my philosophy and what I do every day is that I do not want to do anything that jeopardizes my time with my children. Because when you have kids, it makes your sense of mortality more acute because you realize that we are in this world for only a short period of time and you won't get enough time with your children. And so for me, I've become cognizant of that. And that's really all I want to do. I just want to be with my family. And everything that takes me away from that has to be critical and important to our life and goals to do that. And that is a big tenet of what I've done with my work life. So that I know that, and it helps me, right? Because I know that I want to be with my children, if someone is you know, attempting to get some of my time from a work perspective and it's not critical or it's not so important, I may not take it. Where a lot of people I think in their earlier career will take everything or take every opportunity or whatnot, but I really try to be discerning 
because every hour I'm doing that is another hour I can't be with them. And when you think of it like that, and you think of the fact that they're only going to be babies for a little while, I'm going to miss this. It really does make you very, let's say, yeah, discerning about every decision you make outside of that. Yeah, it's a really good way to prioritize things, <laughs> but more which you just don't really have when you're, uh, yeah, don't have a family as such. Yeah. I will say that it is a wonderful thing. And I know everybody talks about that. And it's, it is one of those things that you have to do to really experience it, which I didn't appreciate before. But I will say, you know, if you are going to do it, that's wonderful. If not, that's okay too. You are going to want to spend that time. It's not something that you should feel as an obligation. I mean, there is definitely an obligation, but you're going to want to do it. And so at that point, I think that will help in the sense it'll make you more sharp because you have less time. Mm, cool. So also interesting, have you read like the statistics of once you turn 20, you've already spent like 98% of the time that you're going to spend with your parents or something ridiculous and that you should really sort of make a point of spending a bit more time with family. So, you know, you move away to different cities and things and there's always just sort of the odd event each year that you actually go back and spend time. And I think it's really important to actually try and have a few weeks with your parents and do things when you're older. You know, I hadn't heard that statistic, but that sounds accurate. And I will say this as one other benefit of becoming a parent is that when you become a parent, you become a better child as well to your parents. Because at that point, as you're going through these phases and you're enjoying, let's say, your, your son being born or your son speaking for the first time or you know, you're up late at night and you're, you're holding them, rocking them to sleep because they're crying, it becomes obvious that not only has every parent done this, but that your parent did that with you. And so it makes you realize that, wow, I'm seeing the appreciation for what they would done with me and the love that they had for me that, I've, that you never appreciated before. And it is, it's an amazing thing. And so actually because of that, for me personally, I actually moved to be closer back to family. Before having kids, I had kind of moved away from a lot of family. And since then, I had that epiphany and said, the right thing to do is to go back and not only have them be part of their lives for me personally, but with my children. Yeah, and that's nice. Super cute. Yeah. And it's also like a bit of a meta thing. I've had similar realizations, but not so much with parenting. Like I said, with like my parents being entrepreneurs, I sort of realized a bit more what they were doing. And then sort of if you like mentor people as entrepreneurs, suddenly you start realizing a lot. I kind of, I think I'm a much better mentee. Like I learn a lot more from people telling me stuff now than I used to. Because like, mm. I realize the mistakes that someone's going to make. I tell them they're going to make the mistake. And then I, I know that they're not listening quite. And they're still going to make it anyway. But now, <laughs> when someone tells me about to make a mistake, I go, this person probably knows that. Like, he's actually like, telling me the truth. Okay, I won't do that thing kind of thing. Right. I'm actually much more able to take on what I'm being told because I kind of realize how much more this person probably knows than I do. Well, I think in your situation too, which is really cool, was that because your parents also have this entrepreneurial background, is that, and we would know this from business, there's so many interesting things that can be gleaned from experience of being an entrepreneur, regardless of the industry, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's things that, you know, if I know nothing about, let's say the apparel industry, but I know that there's interesting things that someone from that industry could impress upon me. So with your parents, that's a really cool thing to have as a conversation point and something to interact with them on because, wow, that's really cool intel. You know, everybody has that and that's fine. There's things we all relate with our parents on at different levels, but that's a really neat one. Okay, cool. So what would you say are some of your favorite 
books like the ones that have most helped you or that you've most given to other people oh that's a good question i read a lot of books and so it would be tough to me to say what's my favorite but if i'm going to think about some of the most recent ones i really like alvin toffler's book called the third wave and this was he's a very well-known futurist and back in the 70s and 80s he's done a lot of really interesting work writing about this book and really what it is is and just to quickly summarize he talks about how you know there was these the first wave of mankind being the agricultural phase the second being the industrial revolution and the third being this new digital information age we're entering what's fascinating is he wrote this before the internet and when you read it it's just it's amazing how it's all true. And so by reading that book, it helps you appreciate different mindsets that people have that are holdovers from the first agricultural wave, the industrial wave that many people still have, and then moving into this new informational age. A lot of it we all feel is innate, right? Because we've all grown up with these things. But when we speak with people who haven't, it's really interesting to understand that divide and then also to know what kinds of business ideas and things will be valuable moving forward and ones that are now, you know, they're in the twilight. So I thought that was a really interesting book that I've really enjoyed and I've definitely shared that a few times. There's a book by a gentleman named Murray Rothbard called The Ethics of Liberty and that I, I really enjoy giving to other people because it is... I really think that you have to have a moral philosophy that always applies. And I think he is probably one of the greatest writers ever about that. And the ethics of liberty is really just about how you apply morality to giving people and like, you know, to letting people do what they want in their lives. So those two, I think would be really good ones. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I have way too many books to read, but that's fine. I yeah. appreciate having more. This is good. Um, okay, and then what would you say is like the best piece of advice you were ever given by a mentor? Wow. You know, this is an interesting one. So one of my mentors was a very successful businessman. He was a family friend. And he had told me this story about how, you know, I'll tell this story because I think it's an interesting one to learn from. When he was trying to get through college, he would have a moving company. And what he would do is he'd organize the price and him and a couple buddies would go and they'd get up really, really early because they were in California and it was going to get hot in the summertime. And they would literally run to get this house finished as soon as possible, running, running, running so that they could be done before it got really hot during the day. So typically they may finish a job in two hours where someone would have assumed it would take five or six. Amazing, right? Everybody should be happy. But he remember he would he reflected to me that the, the problem that when he would go to get get payment, which they had immediately already had agreed upon, the person always had a problem. They said, "But it only took you two hours." He said, "But we got the job done faster." And they said, "But but I I don't feel comfortable paying you. It only took two hours." And that was a very interesting story in in like the human psychology, one of many. Uh, I don't know why that one came to mind. That you know most people are inherently good, but most people feel that. They don't want to be taken advantage of, and they don't want to overpay for something that they didn't need to. And I think that was an interesting one in creating businesses, that you always have to play into that psychology, that people have to feel like they're getting a really good value and they're not overpaying for something, even the, despite the fact they're getting more value. Isn't that kind of a weird, interesting thing? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really funny. I, I've had a similar analogy of a guy that, like, I think he was like a door locksmith, and used to like get a call out and it would take him like an hour like messing around with this lock when we first did it to eventually let someone in and they'd be so grateful for him and then after like a year he was super pro in it he'd like turn up at the person's house and like let them in in like 30 seconds and they'd be like oh thanks mate and like 
all they'd want to give them is like a fiver as opposed to like the hundred quid fee. And, and they're like, well, I'm not going to pay you a hundred quid. It took you like 30 seconds. It's like, but I learned this amazing like job to like do this so quickly. And like, you haven't had to wait for the whole hour whilst I faff around. And so they had like much more value technically from it, but like they didn't want to pay for it. That's another great example of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause you're right. You, we've all done that, right? We've all left our mm. keys in the car. A guy shows up with the slim Jim, pops it out in three seconds. You're like, Oh, <laughs> and now is it his fault? I mean, he has to run a business. You're right. He bought all that stuff. And so, yeah, it's easy for us. We've all been guilty of thinking, I don't want to pay that. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's definitely an interesting one about like the psychology of value. And, and we definitely trick ourselves in these things. The same with like, if you're booking airplane tickets and you're like, Oh, I can save like a fiver if I just get this different one, but then it's at four in the morning and you have to get a taxi that costs 50 quid. And, and you're like, oh, great, <laughs> this is really stupid. And it's definitely your brain is not a logical thing in the end. Yeah, it's very stupid. Yeah, the parable of value. Yeah, that's it. Cool. I like it. Okay. Then on to final few things. What's the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for you? You know what kind of strikes me? is that is how many kind gestures I get actually every day. And so, you know, it, it doesn't, like, I'll give you an example. A gentleman introduced me, you know, we've got to know each other and he took time and put his reputation on the line to make a bunch of introductions for me to a variety of people. And there was no incentive to do that. It was just an act of kindness for me. And it always blows me away at how many people do that for me almost on a daily basis. And the only thing I can think of is that people are, you know, are inherently good and that people like to take part in someone else's journey. And so as a corollary to that, I always make it a point to try to be as kind and be helpful in someone else's journey. Because at the end of the day, you don't remember all of the kind acts that someone did for you to get you from here to there or which ones were the most profound. And yet having that just the, the knowledge that you had some little part in being kind in someone's journey is fantastic. Because again, I get it every day. And so I, I don't know if I can speak to one overarching moment, but millions and little ones that happen all the time. Yeah, and it definitely comes back around. The more you do, the more kindness there just is going on and you kind of miss a lot of the kindness that comes at you. Agreed, yeah. So true. Then what would you say is the most vivid memory you have from childhood? I think it's being with, I was, uh, when my, both my parents were working, I got to spend that time with my great grandmother, which sounds crazy. So I, I was lucky that my great grandmother was alive up until I was 15 years old. And some of my most happiest vivid memories was when I'm four years old being taken care of by my great grandma and spend that time with her. She was this amazing, amazing woman who endured all these crazy things in her life to come to America and to raise a family and, you know, and just gave me unconditional love. And so most of my vivid memories are, are of that. And it left a, I think it gave me some of the, the softer parts of my, my personality. Nice. That's really cute. Okay. Is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? You know, I don't think so. You know, I love talking about entrepreneurship and, the renaissance that I've had in coming up with my own mindset and what I do right now. I love talking about, you know, how I'm trying to change the world. And I think we covered a lot of that. True. Okay. So is there any one take home that you really want to give people or like departing message that we should all embody? 
Yeah, I think it really is that quote, know thyself. I think everybody for their own mental health should go through that exercise and really carve out a good period of time to explore themselves and really determine what's going to make them happy and be honest with themselves. Because once that happens, again, once you've got that philosophy and you've got that blueprint, it's very easy to make a life decision and that create that mindset for you. And of course, avoid all of the clutter and distractions that come with that. The right, the, the Zen thing, you know, ripples in your, in your pond or pool. So that's what I would say as the take home, because ever since I really look at that moment, that once I've had that moment, my life changed dramatically after that. And I've been happier since. And that's really at the end of the day, right? We all have different lifestyles, million things that we can do. It's just what makes us happy every day. Cool. Nice way to end things. And so important. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Hey, thank you for having me, Sam.